Well, happy Mother's Day. Uh, what a time to celebrate and to thank God for our mums and our grandmas and great-grandmas and all the other ladies in our lives as well, but also to, to thank them personally uh, as well and or, or to remember, to remember with thanksgiving uh, those we have lost. Uh, we thank God that in his wisdom he created us men and women and for placing the particular women in our lives that he has and we thank those ladies themselves because of their hard work and it is hard work isn't it being a mum you think about how the effort they put into you uh, and uh, were you always grateful for it no was I always grateful for it no uh, but it was hard work picking up cleaning cooking wiping soaking gardening tidying budgeting planning taxiing people around with mum's taxi service, uh, childminding and all of that before lunch. Uh, and then there was the rest of the day as well. Now, one of the most precious and wonderful parts of motherhood is, is the fact that our mums teach us and instill things into us, uh, helping us to grow up and understand and develop ideas and skills and ways of thinking that will hopefully stand us in good stead for the future. And often those lessons will come out as mottos or catchphrases that your mum was probably renowned for saying. And you can probably think back and just hear her voice saying that, that phrase again, have you got your jumper? Uh, that's a good one that Alison says a lot to our kids. Uh, Go to the toilet before you leave. <laughs> Stop fighting with your sister. Right? <laughs> And I, as I sat down to look this week at our passage for today where Jesus feeds the 4,000 and then warns his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees, two motherly phrases uh, came back to me. Uh, the first wasn't actually from my mum, it's from a good friend of mine, Beth, who was almost like a mum to me when I was single at college. Uh, Beth's a mother of seven and so, well, and when I was around it was eight. But anyway, uh, you can tell from that number... Uh, of children that her husband is an Anglican minister. <laughs> um, you can also tell that she's an amazing woman and must have amazing organisational skills. But the motto I've heard her repeat many times, there's always room for one more. There's always room for one more. Uh, that may also explain the number of kids, but, but for her it's about every life situation. Uh, for her, church is never full because there's always room for one more and she's one of those great inviters of people to church and they're always coming and she's always got someone new with her. Uh, birthday parties are huge because there's always room for one more and so her 50s is like 200 people at it. Uh, but more than anything, that phrase applies to the dinner table. There's always room for one more. If you happen to drop in unannounced, as I frequently did, uh, there's always room for one more. And she deliberately over-caters all her meals just in case the kids bring someone else home or there's a random stranger that could stay. They have the biggest dining table I've ever seen. Uh, so much food, not quite sure how she does it, but it comes from a heart of love for people, wanting to see them all looked after well. But as incredible as Beth is, even with that motto, there's always room for one more, I think she would have had trouble feeding the crowd Jesus did with the food that was available to him. 
The other motto that stuck with me was something that my mum said over and over again and maybe your mum said the same thing. If you keep eating that junk, it'll kill you. <laughs> I, I don't know if your mum ever warned you about the food you were putting into your body. My mum did. Whether it was the lollies we were stuffing in, the chips, or because we had takeaway for the fourth day in a row, uh, she was concerned and it, out it came. If you keep eating that junk, it'll kill you. Hasn't done it yet, Mum. Anyway, so... <laughs> well, Jesus makes that same point in our passage today. Not about physical food, but he says there is spiritual junk food that really will kill us. Lies that are like poison to us. Spiritual junk food which takes us away from the real source of nourishment and provision, which is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the question for us is, are we feeding on the real thing which will give life for eternity or are we stuffing ourselves so full of spiritual junk that'll kill us? And what are we feeding to our families? Well, let's dig in and, uh, and see what Jesus means by that. Jesus is making his way down the Sea of Galilee with huge crowds following along. We've seen those crowds already in the last few weeks. They're flocking from every town and village uh, many of the people there are just looking for a miracle. They want healing for themselves or for someone else close to them. But there's others who are just curious about what's going on. Here's this famous guy and apparently there's going to be a good show today. And then still others, there's a, there's a bunch of enemies too, people who have been infiltrating the crowds and they are plotting to kill him. We've read about that already. And they're looking for a chink in Jesus' armour, some excuse to bring in the guards. And so here's Jesus in the middle of nowhere near the Sea of Galilee on a mountain with this vast tide of humanity before him, men, women and children, some who love him, some who hate him. And his heart, we're told, is filled with compassion for them in verse 32. Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. And I reckon that's remarkable compassion, right? He's telling us about his compassion. He has this remarkable compassion. It's remarkable because he's not responsible for them. He's not their mother, right? They, they've come out to see him. He actually wanted to go preaching in the villages, but he's been mobbed by them. He's not responsible for them. Um, he could just send them away to get their own food, couldn't he? That's what the disciples say. Uh, but it's also remarkable because of the sheer scale of it all. In verse 38, we read that there were 4,000 men besides women and children. And so we're probably talking 10,000 people that he fed that day in the wilderness. And it's remarkable because he's not going to discriminate between the ones who love him and the ones who hate him. As he gets the disciples to hand it out, he's not going to say, well, when you get to that guy over there, just skip past him. He can go hungry. Right? He's, he's compassionate towards all of them. And I think that's worth knowing about Jesus, that no matter who you are or where you stand with him right now, no matter how you've pretended in the past or loved him or hated him, he's got compassion for you. But notice it's not just a helpless compassion either. He's not just going to feel pity but be powerless to act. He intends to solve this hunger problem. But no sooner has he expressed his intentions to the disciples to feed this crowd, then he is met with doubt. 
The disciples said in verse 33, where could we get enough food in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? How on earth do you expect us to do it? Now, at one level, that seems a pretty reasonable question. We're going to find out in a moment as they open up their backpacks that they've got seven loaves of bread between them, <laughs> right? They, uh, they go through the stocks to humour Jesus, but that's all they've got, a few small fish, enough to feed 20, or probably Beth would make it stretch to 30 because there's always room for one more. But, uh, but if this was the first time a situation had come up, you'd feel for them in that moment. And if you were one of them, you'd probably have your doubts too, serious doubts. But the crazy thing is this is not the first time. And it wasn't even that long ago that Jesus had fed such a vast crowd before with even less food. In fact, back in chapter 14, only one chapter ago, we're talking weeks, days before, there were 5,000 men besides women. So we're talking twelve to 15,000 people. Back then, the disciples had also had similar doubts. All right, how can we do it? We haven't got enough money. There's not enough food. But Jesus had them on that occasion pull out five loaves of bread and two fish, so even less food. And then he prayed, like he did this time, gave thanks to God and had them handed out. And lo and behold, there was more than enough. They collected 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And this is only a few days ago or a couple of weeks ago. So... They were there, they saw it, they were involved. This wasn't their first rodeo. In fact, they had pointed out the problem back then and then Jesus made them be the ones to hand out the food, just as he's going to do again, and he made them go and collect all the leftovers. So why do they doubt now? And even more nuts is when they doubt again in chapter 16, in the second half of what we read, that Jesus can provide food for just them, one little boatload. And they start arguing about what they're going to eat. I mean, the night before, he's just fed 10,000 people from your packed lunches. Maybe they're feeling a bit, well, they ate our lunch. But <laughs> there were seven basketfuls. Anyway. But that's human nature, isn't it, to, to doubt. Even when we know something's been done before, it doesn't stop the anxiety coming back and doubts rising. And I think we're particularly good at doubting God, even when he's demonstrated over and over again that he's more than capable of delivering on everything he's ever promised. I mean, how many times have you doubted God in the past and yet here you are now, today? And maybe... You've even come today with your doubts still about Jesus. I mean, he does make tremendous promises, doesn't he? He promises to forgive us our sins and failures when we turn to him. He promises to be with us in hard times. He promises an eternal home with him if we will trust him. And what's more, he's demonstrated that he's more than capable of delivering. I mean, he's conquered death, for goodness sake, just as he promised he would. What more proof do you need than that? But like the disciples, the temptation is to fold our arms and say, oh yeah, here we go, tell us another one, likely story. Doubt is so ingrained in our natures. But as we see, Jesus is so great and so compassionate that even in this moment with the disciples questioning him, 
He's not going to stop providing what's needed. And so he has them once again pull out their packed lunches. Uh, He prays to his Father in heaven who is the provider of everything we have and everything we ever need. And he has the disciples start to pass out the food. And what do you know? Just like last time, there's more than enough. In fact, there's so much food left that they could feed an army with what's left over in the seven basketfuls of bread afterwards. And maybe you could get to this point and think, well, that's pretty cool. I wish I'd been there. That would be fun, wouldn't it, to see that happen? Maybe just to see the disciples get there, come up and see. And it would have been cool to be there because, I mean, I love fresh bread. I don't know about you. It's straight in the oven. It's so delicious. You know, that smell. Yeah, the fish, man, whatever. Maybe you like seafood. I don't know. But, but maybe we could walk away with some pleasant thoughts on this Mother's Day uh, about Jesus' maternal instincts and how he wanted to make sure everyone was fed and overcated for everyone. But if that's all that we get out of it, I think we're missing something. Certainly the early church thought this event was a big deal. In fact, for the first two centuries of Christianity, the church ranked these feedings of Jesus as the greatest miracles that Jesus ever did. Greater than healing the blind, greater than healing the lepers, greater than uh, raising children back from the dead and giving them back to their mothers, greater than casting out demons, greater than stilling the storm. But however you rank it, I'm not sure you should rank them, but There's obviously something stunningly important about what's going on here that makes it far more than just a nice party trick or even a lovely gesture that shows the heart of Jesus. There's something fundamentally that Matthew's showing us. And you can tell there's something big going on because of what happens next. See, Jesus gets in a boat with the disciples and sails over to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. But as soon as he gets there, he's confronted by his enemies. Now, these are part of the same group of guys who've been plotting to kill him since chapter 12, who've attacked him at the start of chapter 15, who are there, some of them in the crowds that have been fed. And they've taken a few shots already at trying to trap him. But this time, they're much more direct. It's in verse 1 of chapter 16. You see it there? The Pharisees and Sadducees, so two groups that didn't particularly get along, and we'll see why shortly. They, these are unholy enemies, they, or bedfellows. They, they approached and tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, go on. If you're really the, who you say you are, if you really are the Messiah that people are starting to say that you might be, If you really are a prophet from God, prove it to us. Go on, prove it. Now, I'm sure they were after something dramatic. I don't know what sign would have proven it to them. You know, an auspicious omen, part the sea, make the sun go backwards, have God write, Jesus is the one in the sky, just using clouds. Right? Uh, But here's the thing, it wasn't an honest request, was it? And they wouldn't have believed even if a sign like that had happened because they didn't want to believe. They'd come to test Jesus. This wasn't, you know, we really want to believe and so please help us in our unbelief. This was, yeah, go on. 
So they ask for a sign, it's just making more excuses not to trust him, not to believe in him. I mean, it's not like they're ignorant of everything else. Jesus has been in this very area in the, the, the northwest of the Sea of Galilee for almost his entire ministry doing the things he did. It's all in that area, healing the lepers, instantaneously making the blind see with no surgery, just a word. Lame people walking, the people with crippled hands, their hand reforms in front of them, right? You can't trick people with that. Raising children back to life. They, they were there to see it. And in fact, every time they had seen it, what did they do? They complained about it. They knew it was happening, but you healed that crippled guy with the withered hand, but you did it on a Saturday, which is the Sabbath, and so it's holy, so you can't be from God, Right? He casts out a demon. They say, well, you know why he can cast out demons? Because he's got the prince of demons in him. Right? He's evil. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what he does. They were not only there for the feeding of the 5,000. I presume they've heard word about the 4,000 yesterday. What more do they need? Which is the point Jesus makes in reply. Verse 2, he replied, When evening comes, you say, it will be good weather because the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. Like you want to start, just open your eyes. The signs are everywhere. These guys are supposed to be thoroughly versed in the Old Testament and all the promises. Well, the Old Testament gives you all the signs to look for when the Messiah comes. What will happen when that happens? The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, right? the, the, the lame will walk and dance for joy. You don't need a party trick. The signs are there. Or the feedings in the wilderness. When was the last time... God miraculously fed his people in the wilderness when they were hungry. Anyone know? Yeah, the manna from heaven. When Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt and was bringing them to the promised land. And what did he feed them with? The manna, which was bread from heaven. And quail as well. There was you know, some, some little birds um, but for years he'd done it, 40 years in fact, feeding them miraculously with the ancient equivalent of KFC, right? Chicken on a bun, right? <laughs> and, and get this, at the end of Moses' life, as he stood at the edge of the promised land and delivered one last speech to the people of Israel, do you know what he said? He prophesied someone in the future. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's page 167 in your pre Bibles if you, if you want to go find it. But Deuteronomy 18, verse 5, The Lord will, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. I will put my words in his mouth. And so for 1,500 years... Israel had waited, waited for a prophet like Moses to arise 
to come who they had to listen to. Who would speak with all the authority of God. They had many prophets along the way, people sent to warn them and encourage them, but none of them was a prophet like Moses who could lead them out of slavery into glory. Until Jesus arrives on the scene. And he sees them there in that very same wilderness that Israel had wandered in all those years ago. And he's going to demonstrate exactly who he is. That he is the prophet like Moses who was to come by feeding them miraculous bread that they could not provide for themselves despite the protests of the disciples. And so here for the first time in 1500 years is someone like Moses doing Moses-like things. In fact, doing them even greater than Moses did them. I mean, Moses was stressed out of his head at the hunger problem and he didn't know what to do about it. So he prayed to God to fix the problem and he didn't know what to do himself. Jesus has perfect idea of what to do and Moses wasn't the one who solved it. God did. It wasn't Moses who fed them and it didn't even happen the day that Moses prayed. It happened the day after. Right? There was just bread out there for them all to get. And Moses didn't start by picking up the first piece of bread that appeared and then multiply it somehow. God made the bread all over the ground and people picked it up themselves. Who is this man before you now? He's obviously the one. In fact, it's as if God himself has come. But notice from Deuteronomy something else about Moses' prophecy. What should you do when the prophet like Moses comes? You must listen to him. Listen to him. That's the important thing. Listen to him who speaks the very words of God. Listen to him because he's the one who's going to lead us out of slavery, a slavery far worse than anything they experienced in Egypt a slavery which we're trapped in by nature. We are slaves to sin and we are slaves to death and we cannot free ourselves from those things. But he can do it and he has done it by his sacrifice for our sins and by conquering death. That's how he saves his people. Listen to him because he's leading us to a new and far better place than just another country in this world, even one that's flowing with milk and honey. Listen to, us, to him because he's leading us to an eternity of joy and glory with him forever where sin and death do not reign, where there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. Listen to him because he's not just going to bring another law like Moses did, which will only condemn, but he's going to bring a gospel of grace and bring freedom and forgiveness no wonder the early church considered this to be so great a miracle because they twigged what was really going on. That it was the sign that the new exodus had begun. That the saviour had arrived to lead and to save. The one we must listen to. But Jesus knows his enemies are aware of all that. But they just don't want to listen to him. They don't want him to be the one. That's why they keep testing him and prodding him and poking him. And, oh, give us another sign. It's just unbelief, which is why he slams them so hard in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for 
the sign of Jonah. And then he left them and went away. But it's also why he will go on and warn the disciples in no uncertain terms not to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not to be infected with their unbelief. You see it in verse 5. The disciples reached the other shore and they'd forgotten to take bread. As if that's ever been a problem for Jesus to solve. But Jesus takes the moment to drive home a much more important issue than their physical hunger. There is a spiritual poison that they might be tempted to feed on. So Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now the, the disciples haven't got a clue what he's talking about. They, they haven't really figured it out yet. They just think he's talking about bread again. After all, isn't that what you use leaven for? Leaven's just another word for yeast. Uh, you know yeast, don't you? Well, the mums do here, at least, uh, because you've got the cupboard stocked with it. Right? The little packets of sachets of instant yeast, or you know the active yeast in the fridge. Uh, the, the mums know it. Um, you use it to bake bread. But yeast is fascinating stuff when you think about it. You you don't need very much of it to have a very big effect. I don't know if you've ever baked bread. I did a lot during COVID. I, I learned from YouTube. Um, but you just mix a teaspoon, depends on the recipe, maybe a tablespoon, in with a couple of cups of flour, so a small amount to a big amount, with some water. But that's all you need because in the proving process, the yeast feeds on the sugars in the flour and it multiplies and works through the whole batch and turns it into a dough that's going to expand and grow as you just leave it and within an hour it's doubled in size. Um, it's quite amazing to see it. But the disciples hear Jesus talking about bread and yeast and where do their minds go? Back to their stomachs. <laughs> Sounds like the kids. So, so Jesus sets them straight. I'm not talking about your lack of bread as if after feeding the two mass feedings of people from virtually nothing, you think you'd starve around me. No, I'm talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's the yeast I mean. It's poison that'll make you spiritually sick and will even kill you. The Pharisees, they were all about religious rule keeping. We've seen that already. They were more concerned about following their own traditions and rules than with truly seeking and obeying God. They taught that by being religious enough, keeping the rules, they could buy their way into heaven. And it's so easy to think that ourselves, but it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. We'll never save ourselves. What we need is mercy from our God. We need his compassion, the compassion that sends Jesus to die when we're helpless. The Sadducees, on the other hand, you know far less about them because they come up so less frequently. They, they didn't believe there was anything after this life. This world was all there is. You just die and that's that. And so religion, they were religious, but religion's only useful for what you can get out of it in this life. It's all this world focused. So believe if you want, if it's useful to you. But that's another life straight from the pit of hell. And like yeast or a batch of dough, you can see how powerful both of those lies are and how they've infected our society. And Jesus warns them and he warns us not to believe those lies. He says it's spiritual junk that will kill you. Come instead to the real source of life and nourishment, which is Jesus himself. Well, let me wrap up with three lessons for Mother's Day. 
The first one is recognise that Jesus is the great provider for your family. It's not mum and it's not dad. Right, we, we thank God for our mums because of the way they look after us. But we've got to remember that Jesus Christ is the source of all things and he, only he provides for our spiritual needs. We, we, we cannot save our children, only Christ can do that. Number two, that means the most important lessons we can teach our children or the nieces and nephews or the grandchildren, you know, the, the, the other generations... The most important lessons we can teach them are not just about getting on with each other and not hitting your sister and not forgetting your jumper. Right? The most important role as mothers and fathers and encouragers and disciples is to point our children towards Christ and to teach them to love and follow him. The greatest thing you can do for your family is point them to the Lord Jesus. That's what Lois and Eunice did for Timothy, which Paul reminds Timothy of in that other reading we had. These were women who knew the truth, who loved Jesus, and they impressed on him as he grew up and, and even into his adult life to love Jesus. Tremendous examples of motherhood. But third and finally, we need to watch out what we're feeding ourselves as well. It's very easy for mums to care for the family and neglect themselves. Maybe you've done that or maybe you've noticed your mum did that. We do it in all sorts of ways. We tell our kids, make sure you get exercise, but then you forget. <laughs> we tell our kids to stop fighting with their siblings when that's exactly what we're doing right now. <laughs> Let's not do that with Jesus. Are you finding all of your nourishment in him? Are you listening to the Lord Jesus? He is the one who is to come. You must listen to him. Are you listening to him and trusting him when he speaks? Even when he says things that go against the cultural norms of our society, which they very much do today, particularly in the areas of family and motherhood and other things. Are you listening to him when he says, trust him rather than yourself to provide all things and particularly to save us or have you started chowing down on the spiritual junk food this world is infected with the things that poison us against christ and call us not to trust him to take pride in ourselves or to trust something else to save us or maybe these crystals will help or this reading this astrology this 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 stuff that's out there you that's what you need to to really make it no only jesus only jesus is the answer and so listen to him. Father, we want to thank you for the ladies in our lives, particularly our mums and our grandmas and those who've influenced us over the years and provided. We thank you for them, their hard work. And we pray, please, that you'll help us to find our nourishment in you, in the saving words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we won't be infected with this world. And we pray as we care for others and pray for them and point to and, and teach about what matters that we will point most of all to the Lord Jesus, the one who is the real provider. In his name we pray. Amen.